This is Aaron. This is Michael. And you're listening to the Nathan's and Roncast. Roncast. Far sea croons itself to rest. Well, actually, you heard about Ron, Michael Roncat. Michael Roncat. Uh, Michael Roncat does approve of these podcasts, by the way. I got the word from my friend Dave that his cat approves. A pale cloud turns. Well, this is a really um, poignant story that we're going to tell today. This is uh, the story of, of the late, great Alan Turing. And, um, boy, what's that? What's there to say? This is a song that's based off of... Uh, I, I wrote this song based off of an apology from a former British Prime Minister, Gordon Brown, that was uh, just talking about... And he, he, he was the, the, the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom back... This was maybe 12 years ago, and this was the formal apology that he made because uh, Alan Turing, who was a war hero and the uh, the father of computer science, was persecuted uh, because he was gay. And uh, he he may have single-handedly ended ended uh, World War II with uh, his the technology that he created to intercept the German uh, um, code that that, that the that uh, the ships were using to communicate with each other. So um, that's kind of, this story is, is, this song is the story of Alan Turing's uh, life and the great things that he did and, uh, and then, then his downfall and eventual suicide because he was, uh, he was persecuted for being gay. So this song really will break your heart because it's, it's something that we humans do. We, we, as governments or as individuals or as institutions, there's always bad choices. <laughs> and sometimes people who have saved lives will be punished unfairly. And um, because of that, I mean, it's a simple message. Like, it's, it's just, it's an apology. It's just a straight apology. And it's like, you deserve better. We want you to know that you deserve better. And uh, we're just going to play a little snippet of the song, some sections, just here, you know how, how stark. We have guitar, we have some cello, we have some vocals, yeah. some harmony. Um, it's probably the most sparse song on the record. Yeah, yeah. It's And the cello is perfect for it because it emotes that thing that cellos do. Yeah. So let's play it. you take those pills you took to bed. I'm really excited that our guest today is George Dyson. He's the author of the book Turing's Cathedral, which is a fascinating look at how Alan Turing's idea for a mechanical computer ended up being realized. And uh, he wrote this book in, in large part as a chronicle of the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton, which is... Uh, not Princeton University. It's a, it's a smaller organization that uh, is kind of off. You have to kind of know what's there to go looking for it. But some of the, the greatest thinkers in history uh, came through the Institute for Advanced Study. And uh, it's a terrific book. And I'm really looking forward to you hearing this interview with the author, George Dyson. All right. Good morning. We are here with George Dyson, author of the fantastic book Turing's Cathedral, uh, written and published in was it 2012? 2012. Yes. Yeah, I've really enjoyed what I, what I've read of it. It's uh, a wonderful history of how the first Turing machine was was realized. What did Alan Turing do, and what did he not do in terms of the creation of the first universal computing machine? That's a deep question because people have been thinking about computing for a long time, uh, hundreds of years, 
in fact. But Alan Turing came along. I mean, he, he just was the right person at the right time. The, the way I view the history of computing is there's an Old Testament and there's a New Testament. There's Old Testament prophets like Leibniz and Hobbes in the 16th and 17th centuries. And then there were the New Testament prophets. So the Old Testament prophets sort of developed the logic and the New Testament prophets developed the machines. And Alan Turing was the guy who was spanned both those worlds. So, so he came into it as a, as a pure logician, very abstract mathematician, interested in sort of proving or actually disproving a mathematical point called the Entscheidung's problem or the decision problem, the question of whether is there any formal systematic way that you could build a machine that would be able to look at a formula written in a mathematical language and, and to tell you whether it's true or false. And I'm sort of garbling that, but, but that was a very deep unresolved question. And Alan Turing being, being absolutely young and not knowing what was impossible and, and how to do things, he, he came up with a, a just a yeah, extraordinarily original way of of disproving this hypothesis. And he, he did it by inventing an imaginary machine that could only do the simplest of things, but it could do them as, for as long as it took. And, and it, so effectively, it was a machine that could do anything. If you, if you could tell it what you wanted it to do, it could do it. And even that machine that, that could do anything could not answer the decision problems. But that was an abstract paper in logical mathematics. It's very fact, he, he, when he came to Princeton right after that, actually the paper was published while he was here as a graduate student. And he complained to his mother that only, he, only two people uh, replied to the paper, you know, sort of wrote to him and said they wanted a copy. Or, uh, so it seemed to be going nowhere. And he, he came to Princeton to actually work on something else deeper mm -hmm. and then but then suddenly that that was the right paper at the right time because of what happened in world war ii with needing to break german encrypted messages so a lot of these what seemed very abstract logical questions became important you know could you start building machines that could look at strings of codes and make sense of them again i'm very much simplifying what happened but mm -hmm. just sort of through accidents of history what turing did in the abstract became very important in a concrete way you know, I, I'm a little confused about on the point of when Turing built that machine that they showed in the movie that we saw at the museum in New York um, to crack the code, the Enigma machine code. Did that actually help lead to the creation of the first computer, or was that kind of a uh, kind of a, an offshoot, kind of a spin-off? No, I mean that's all sort of mixed up in the Hollywood sense. That I mean, you're talking about the the mainstream film that yeah it was called the bomb b-o-m-b -B. yeah b-o-m-b okay so, so the the bomb was actually invented and built by people in poland by mathematicians in poland already who 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 of course were invaded by the germans long before the, the war came to england and so that was a reasonably simple machine it was was effectively if you're trying to reverse engineer a enigma machine which has a sequence of rotors and the, the rotors have electrical contacts and you can, it's like a combination lock sort of in reverse. It's like a combination lock for strings of code. And the B-O-M-B-E was just enormous. In fact, IBM helped build when they sort of mass produced them. So, so it was really a, you know, information processing machine that, that ran through enormous astronomical numbers of possible combinations and would then try and sort of worked with the people. The people would give it clues and then it would help amplify the guesses of the people. So that really had, had very little to do with modern computing. There was a, a later machine that was influenced by Turing's ideas called Colossus, which came in later, much later in the war, because Germans realized their, their codes were being cracked. So they developed more complicated digital codes was a sort of arms race between the people encrypting the messages and the people trying to decrypt them. So, so the bomb was very early in the war and Colossus was much later. I don't understand why they didn't use Colossus in the film because it, huh. it, it used vacuum tubes. It was electronic. The, the bomb was strictly uh, mechanical. I mean, just, just wheels and rotors and motors, whereas the Colossus actually had punched paper tape and a, a very crude form of electronic memory to 
to again sort of trying to match up these bunch of different sequences and see where the sequence where there was an overlap between uh, so that oh. was and dozens of books have been written about that right. you know, the adventure the sort of day by day the germans were changing the codes every day and the british had you know 24 hours to try and crack it before the code was changed oh. and, and what the movie got wrong or didn't really portray was this, this was an army of people it was enormous numbers of people i mean they they sort of played touring into their pigeonhole of the lone you know non-social genius working alone but i mean he everybody loved alan turing he had he had a great sense of humor he worked well with people the women all loved him and it was most of the work was being done by women and and, uh and it was a huge social group it was like los alamos that's why everybody all the people from both los alamos and bletchley park it was the for for everybody was sort of the happiest time of their lives because they were working in this very cohesive group and you know, nobody turned against Alan Turing until much, much, much later. How do we get from the, the I mean, does the Colossus machine actually um, connect to, to to the efforts to make the first uh, non-military, I'm calling it non-military computer, but of course there were military ties, uh, pretty strong military ties. And maybe we can get, get to that in a moment, but, but wh- where does it go from the Colossus? Yes, I mean, the Colossus is strongly connected in a very unfortunately indirect way. And so Colossus, the first prototype of it was immediately successful, started cracking these more difficult codes. So by the end of the war, I think there were 10, you know, it was replicated 10 times. So it was, it was actually a, you know, it was equivalent to what you would now call a server farm. These 10 Colossi by the end of the war were, was, was a pretty massive operation and had broken ground in much of the technology that would be needed to do real computers. I mean, it was a very high speed gating and switching and using vacuum tubes as for storing bits. There were things we take absolutely for granted today. And the tragedy was, the same as with Turing himself, that decisions was made at the very highest levels that, that all this was secret and it would stay secret and the Colossus machines were destroyed and oh. no one was ever allowed to talk about it. So it just, it was silenced in a way that, that you could make, you know, you could make an argument that, well, if there was going to be another war in 10 years, it would be important to not have revealed how, you know, how these machines were built and how the codes were cracked. But, but you know, there was no cost analysis done of what what would it do to the British economy if we opened this technology up and let the, you know, the, this, is why, this is effectively why the computer industry developed, you know, more freely in America than in, in England. So so many of the people who worked on Colossus sort of, I mean, you can actually find in, in von Neumann's letters and the, you know, people like Andrew Booth and so on would, would come from England and, and say, well, I can't, I can't really tell you exactly how to do this, but, but here is sort of how, how you might do it. And you, it's clear they're talking about stuff that was done, you know, with vacuum tubes during the war. And that sort of knowledge is reappearing, but it, it's not like, you know, at the end of Los Alamos, there was this document called the Smith Report that really explained what could be explained in a non-classified way about atomic weapons. And that I think that was a very good thing to and the same should have been done for the, you know, for the Colossus project to say this. This is what we learned about electronics, and 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 not just the hardware side, but the probabilistic logic, and and what now is a, is enormous field of sort of Bayesian network theory, which has driven a lot of the real advances in AI and and so on. Mm. And we, you know, was developed by by Turing and and uh, Jack Good and those people during during the war, but they they later could only publish their very academically cleansed versions of what, what had been done. Alan Turing uh, envisioned both computers and artificial intelligence, you know, just kind of off the top of his head. Um, that's that's pretty, pretty, pretty amazing. Uh, there's the Turing machine. There's the, the Turing test, right? What's the, what's the Turing test? Uh, it's also been, I mean, the problem is by this time, when something gets named after you, it's usually very different. You know, it just gets shifted. Like, like Darwin was not really a Darwinist, and you know, von Neumann didn't believe in von Neumann machines and so on. And so, the, the Turing test was 
is taken as being a test for artificial intelligence. That if you, if you can carry on a English language conversation with the machine and you cannot tell whether you're speaking with a machine or a human being, that machine has passed the test. But I think, I think Alan Turing himself, I mean, this was a sort of offhand reference in one of his papers. He wouldn't have stuck with it for the problem is someone, something gets named like a disease or something, then you're stuck with it forever. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I think Turing would be sort of disappointed that, that, that something so trivial was yeah. named, named after him. He did all these deep things. We've talked a little bit about uh, von Neumann. Who, who was von Neumann? Well, von Neumann's another, you know, just enormous character who has become larger than life. I mean, sort of credit is sort of like a black hole. And once you become of the stature of von Neumann or so, you know, thing, things that just got near you, you get credit for because people think, oh, that's so brilliant. Von Neumann must have done it. And it's not, not always true. So, so to John von Neumann, yeah. So to be very clear to your critics who will complain, I mean, von Neumann got credit for a lot of other people's work, but he did enough of his own work that he, he, he certainly deserves his own credit, but he, he was very much the sort of orchestra conductor type who could get other people to just, just by waving a little finger, he could, he could get somebody to do something that would, that would turn out. He could see how this would be important in the end. And, and he also had the, because his, you know, his father was a wealthy banker in Budapest. He just, he grew up with that, sense of wealth and, and power that he he was attracted to it so he had the he had the ability to get sort of unlimited funding from the government and you know everybody instantly believed whatever he said was next would be important and that was in in the computing world that was extremely important because all these ideas were floating around but he was the guy who kind of put them all together and, and made this project in Princeton happen but but he himself was always very explicit that this was fundamentally Turing's idea that they were realizing this sort of vision of Alan Turing's but doing it in a in a concrete way once von Neumann was was getting started with this um, it, it, there was already a computer at this point but it wasn't a Turing machine uh, well that again that's the subject of endless debate i mean on the on the british side colossus was was absolutely a electronic com digital computer that's what it was but you know they had an immediate problem of breaking these codes and certainly there were people working on it who could easily and willingly have turned it into something different but sort of progress was stopped and on the american side we had a different problem which was developing the, the army we were producing enormous numbers of artillery weapons that at that time had sort of had to be calibrated with firing tables, which took an enormous amount of calculation. So, so under the army at the Aberdeen proving ground, which was their, their business was developing weapons. They developed an also a very groundbreaking electronic computer called the ENIAC, the electronic numerical integrator and computer that was actually developed at the Moore school in Philadelphia also from the beginning, you know, very early in the war, but was grinding away doing these day-to-day -day ballistics calculations. And of course, von Neumann being so involved in everything knew about this. And, and he had a different problem at Los Alamos, the problem of, of calculating implosions or, or neutron, you know, another deep mathematical problem that, that he needed a computer for. And, and so, he, so he jumped on the ENIAC as how we could use this for our Los Alamos. And, and uh, just to be clear, was this um, before or after uh, Nagasaki? Uh, uh, this was before. Before. So this was actually in the effort to, uh, to develop the atomic bomb. Well, the interesting thing was that they already had the atomic bomb, but they were already thinking about the next. They, they were actually thinking about hydrogen bombs, about how to use fission bombs to create a, a, you know, a secondary explosion and that there the sort of numerical hydrodynamics became just beyond what could be done by hand and you know and again all that history has, is very convoluted there are people now sort of there's sort of a third generation of books being written that are, are really resolving that in a in a clear way by because the, I mean, the good thing about secret projects is that the documents get saved it's very hard to throw secret stuff out it may get lost but it but it doesn't it often doesn't get destroyed and so the you know the whole thing was very was 
very much a mixed up genealogy. There was no clear Turing invented this, von Neumann invented that. There was there was constant sort of hybrid cross pollinization of ideas. People from Los Alamos going to England, people from England, of course, were a whole group of British contingent at Los Alamos, and. and and computing was threaded all through it. I mean, everything they did required, was they were using punch card machines mainly. But once the existence of the ENIAC became known, it was irresistible to von Neumann to sort of turn this machine into something else, to use it as a programmable computer that you could program. Now, the, the people who built the ENIAC and invented the ENIAC, they, they have a very strong, clear case that they, they had thought of that already. And they also, given them the time and the resources that von Neumann had, they would have done that too. But it happened to be von Neumann who sort of had the authority to come in and say, you know, we're taking over this machine and going to use it in a different way. And, and who had all the money to, to, uh, to, to give von Neumann the, the resources to realize this? It was, things were so different in those days. It was, it was primarily the, I mean, of course, the Army sort of held the big budget and the machine was built by the Army. But the Navy had the Office of Naval Research, and they were really the they were the groundbreaking leaders of everything. The ONR, that, that which actually became directly transitioned into what we now call the National Science Foundation. But at the ONR, they could I mean so much of the looking at deep scientific questions that actually did have military interests, like like how would you predict the waves if you were going to invade? You know, like if you're going to try and invade Europe, it really depends on what the waves are like the day that you invade, and how do you pick the day that is least likely to have high waves? And that, that's a, and of course physicists love, and oceanographers love to work on those kinds of problems. But it was the ONR who hired those people, and and the ONR was actually led by a woman, Mina Reese, who and she just could snap her fingers. You know, if the word came from the ONR that the ENIAC is needed for two weeks for von Neumann to run this problem, that's what would happen. You know, we're, we're living in a very interesting time where we are right now losing the very last of the people who were there during World War II at Bletchley Park or at Los Alamos. There's al- almost none left. And I, I was lucky enough to come in right when I could still talk to people who had been there. Wow. And one, one of the people I interviewed told me how about it. I mean, you know, I asked that question: How did how did you get the budget for the for this huge computing project at the institute in Princeton? Which was, you know, their budget was six times what the normal budget for mathematics in a whole year was. And they said, "Oh, we just we just had a meeting up in the they had a card table up in the boardroom, and and you know, somebody from Army would be there, and somebody from ONR would be, and it was like a poker game. The guy the guy from Army would say, "Well, I'll put in." X thousand dollars, and they said, "Well, I'm good for two X." Somebody else would say, "Well, okay, I'll put in ten. They had their budget, like in ten minutes, and that was it. Wow. <laughs> you know, when uh, when we were making the video for this song, we went to the Spygate Museum in New York, and I want to take a moment to give a shout out to just a really interesting place in in, in New York City where they we actually saw the. Um, uh, the Enigma machine uh, examples of that in in, in the uh, in the museum. And it was really fun. I th- I was blown away by the presentation, the technology, uh, even just a little like badge that you would scan to put your put your stuff in the locker. It fit to like they had these games for anyone who wanted to do a little more and kind of try out their spycraft skills so something for the whole family and uh well worth the money that you would pay um there's not a lot of high dollar things that i would say this is absolutely worth it uh but the spycraft museum has it all so i i if you're in new york for any reason please venture out to the spycraft museum spygate oh spygate museum look i really know (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you, you, you re- they didn't pay us to say this, so uh, we could say anything we want. But, yeah, so but, go to the Spygate Museum where you can get your spycraft on. This is basically a thank you note yeah, to, thank uh, you. to the folks at the Spygate for being so kind to let and us in. Our pro- well, and our apologies for this cello player who didn't know the name of the museum after. I just Sorry, Spygate. Yeah, sorry. I knew the name at one point, and as songwriters, we mutate things through time. So. But check out the video. It's really cool. Back to our back to the interview. Yeah. What I'm kind of getting the sense of is that in your writing, you approach kind of the story that's not told 
the reason I'm thinking about this is I was looking on Amazon at your book, and it was interesting to see one of the reviews saying that it was, you know, well-researched, but they were expecting the story of Alan Turing and World War II, but they, in fact, got a different story than they expected. And as a songwriter, you want to surprise people. You want to say something that someone hasn't heard. So in all your science-based writing and historical writing, what are some of the surprises you found yourself, maybe with uh, Turing's Cathedral, uh, that, that you hadn't known that was probably like the, the highlight of your research? Because it must be kind of fun to go through everything and, and discover these things that you're going to help us as readers understand. Yes. I mean, it really, it, it's like field archaeology. You're just digging around and looking for fossils and there, suddenly there's, well, there's the thigh bone of a Tyrannosaurus right, right in the middle of just a field of mud. But what you said about albums is, is very true that just, it's a very good analogy because if you, you know, you have an album, you have one song on that album and, and, and the album maybe is titled after that song, but that doesn't mean the whole album is, is 12 versions of that song. So yeah, that it was interesting how, I mean, you know, a book has to have a title and and of course to me Turing's cathedral was it had has levels of meanings that the the whole field of computing is like a cathedral where everybody works on one little piece nobody there's no architect of the whole thing but the foundation of it was Turing's but the things I found yeah it was always discovering people it's it, I always had an interest in the lower level people the you know the secretaries and the engineers and the people like, how did you actually get this thing done and IAS in Princeton there was no machine shop or anything like that how did how did you actually go in and do that memorable things I discovered I mean probably the most extraordinary was the first algorithms that were run on the uh, ENIAC were were a code called Monte Carlo which was a another just brilliant innovation that didn't come from von Neumann it came from Stan Ulam who, who actually had this idea while he had developed viral encephalitis in his brain. It was told to, he was in the hospital dying. It's just, the doctor told him to stop thinking. So he started playing, thought, okay, I'll do something mindless. I'll play solitaire. And then while playing solitaire, he invented this absolutely new method of pioneering way of, of, of sort of statistically computing these intractable problems. And it was named Monte Carlo after the casino. And then I, I became very interested in, the, really, I think the, to me, the character who brings Turing's Cathedral to life is Clary von Neumann. That's von Neumann's second wife, Clary. And she just somehow fell in love with Monte Carlo and, and through, again, just accidents of history, turned out to be very good at it. So she actually ran a lot of those early codes. Those Monte Carlo codes were run by, by Clary. And then when, when her her stepdaughter, Marina, you know, invited me to Michigan, said, well, there's this one filing cabinet in the basement next to the water heater, and, and it didn't go to the Library of Congress, but you should come look at it, because it was all the letters between Clary and John von Neumann, the primarily love letters, the whole history of their relationship. They both were married to other people when they sort of fell in love, and, and they, but they had known each other back in Hungary at the, in the good old days before the war. And, and then I read those letters in there is, is Clary's journals too. And it turns out she met, I mean, she had known Johnny in Hungary. Of course, he was a ready, a famous, brilliant young mathematician. And she was a national champion figure skater at 14. And there, so their families had known each other. And then her second husband was a, a addicted gambler, a really pathological gambler. They were in Monte Carlo and he was gambling all their money away and she was drinking at the bar and and Johnny von Neumann was there and had run out of money because he thought he had a system. He was, he, you know, he was wealthy, but not really sort of gambling wealthy. And he thought he could beat the house and he had lost and he was out of money and met Clary in the bar in Monte Carlo. That's how they met. So, you know, if you find something like that, you go, you know, you could imagine that for a million years, but you could, it would be unimaginably sort of coincidental. Wow. Were these people who who would bring, I mean, the Monte Carlo code is really the the code that changed the world and, and that the two people who sort of would make it happen would, you know, ended up meeting in Monte Carlo. And then, and then there's this just extraordinary sequence of sort of love letters back and forth where she has to write to him, she writes to him in a, in a sealed envelope inside another, you know, to, to his secretary saying, you know, please personally give this to, you know, Dr. Professor von Neumann, those letters go back. And, they, and those letters were all saved, which is now, now they are in the Library of Congress. So that's, a, I mean, why that has not but, well, actually, it is. Uh, there's a novel coming out uh, in October that has bits of that in it. So, uh, Labuta, L A B 
B-U-T-A. So this will be out October. In fact, I remember the date. It's coming out October 23rd. It's called Maniac is the title. Maniac. M-A-N-I-A. That was waiting to happen. I think Aaron sent you the song. Yes, um, I looked at it. So the song really pulls at, you know, at your heart, you know, it builds, it builds it, and then it just breaks your heart because like, oh my. And so for anyone who doesn't know that aspect of it, when you listen to it, what, what was your impression or take on it? As one who knows a lot about it already, how did it affect you? Yeah, well, I mean, I just took it as, as, as sort of what it is. I mean, this is tragic ballad of the classic non-compassion of the bureaucracy versus the compassion of human beings there's you're not going to find any one person who set out to destroy alan turing but just the combined forces of the law and the the systems and stuff just and he 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 survived that for so long he was very good as you sort of have to it's like a kitten that grows up having to you know survive people kicking it and stuff i mean you you get good at resilient but at a certain point it was too much and then i think i mean that the other tragedy but that that's sort of a little bit under the surface of your song is the to me it's an equal tragedy of how then when turing's ideas made a whole lot of people a whole lot of money then of course everybody wants to take credit for it yeah (laughs) you know now he's on the 50 pound you know banknote too too late yeah too late exactly like you know okay why why couldn't you you know done that a little sooner and that that is the tragedy you know that leads to a, uh, an interesting dynamic that the the, the was it the ENIAC at uh, at at uh, University of Pennsylvania they uh, they patented that right yes that became the, the largest lawsuit in history why i didn't know that but i mean that kind of prevented it from being a jumping off point in a way for others to copy it whereas the one made uh, in in princeton at, at uh, the institute for advanced study i think that was open source right yeah that's very complicated i mean actually that's where von neumann was i think rather unscrupulous and wrong because he he promised all his engineers that they would patent it you know because these guys gave up big careers to come work for him and the original promise was that they would take out patents and and oh. that never happened, and that's a complicated reasons. But there's there's some reasonably unethical footnotes to that, where he he was actually being paid as a consultant by IBM, so all the ideas were going to IBM. So there there was some bitterness among. I mean, everyone is very polite about it, and and the engineers who wanted to all, of course, later got jobs at, at IBM. But in a way, the ENIAC people were. I mean, their company was Univac, and von Neumann was. You know, he always gravitated sort of to the centers of power, and he was very much on the IBM side. There's sort of some unfavorable history there that still people are bitter about. But the the interesting thing about the patent problems was that as a historian, when everything's going well, nobody kind of records anything and it's lost to history. Like very few people sort of write about a happy day at Los Alamos or something. But when something goes wrong, then it's all well documented. So this huge lawsuit over the ENIAC patent was a just a gift to history because they there were depositions from all the people who had any involvement in computing at, at that time and was, i think i don't I can't remember what the, it's like 160 million pages of evidence in that trial and that that became the core of this large collection at university of minnesota that sort of became became the charles babbage institute so it's this mm. you know even people from britain were brought in to testify i mean as to what had happened so so in that sense it was a it was a great thing they had that dispute so what was it about the computer that von Neumann made in, in Princeton that made it the template for the computers that we're talking on right now? Uh, well, that's what my the whole Turing's Cathedral is sort of about, is why why do I believe that that's, you know, because we, we now, everybody takes it for granted, we, now, we live in this digital universe that everything is sort of in this numerical matrix. And, and now it's enormous, right? I mean, we're doing audio over an internet, you know, enormous billions and billions of bits, per, you know, per minute going back and forth. But, but all that, every single bit still has a numerical address in this mathematically defined space, which was this idea that the beginning, you know, was just the domain of pure logicians. Sort of imagine that you have a chessboard, and what can you do on this chessboard? And now we we live in this, but it still is fundamentally a two-dimensional address 
matrix. And I became obsessed with the question of where did that actually begin? Sort of like with life itself, what's the last common ancestor? And you may have different branches, but some branches die out and some. And if you look how it all really goes back, it does go back to that machine at the Institute that had a 32 by 32 by 40 bit matrix of memory. So that's what we now would call 5,000 bytes, 40,000 40, bits, 5,000 5, bytes. So it's like a tenth of a second of bad mm. MP3 audio. <laughs> um, but in that little matrix, they developed, they ran these Monte Carlo codes and they did all these things. They did all these crazy things with it. And, and of course it was, it was so successful, it was immediately copied. Even even before it was finished, there were copies of it that were finished sooner because the engineer, Julian Bigelow, von Neumann's engineer, he was trying to get it perfect. And other people were saying, I've, I've got a problem. I just want to get my problem done. And they got their machines finished first. But so it exploded from there. And I believe that almost every computer today, and they all can be traced back to that original five kilobytes, which is also so interesting to, to be living in a time where you know, it's, it's like being present at the origins of life or something mm -hmm. like that. I mean, actually seeing the beginning of something. People working on it, they they all believed it would change the world. They were true believers. And, you know, we've lived long enough to see that that was true. Quite an amazing thing. And, of course, it goes back to Turing. The proof, you, know, you always need documents as proof. And historians argued, you know, for a very long time, did the people at the Institute, you can make an argument, they didn't care about Turing. They had nothing they didn't need Turing to build that machine. But if you go to the, the library, you can, you can actually walk over there, go to the Institute library, and down there in the lower stacks, they have all the journals that people don't never look at anymore. But there's the journals of the London Mathematical Society, and they're all in very crisp, untouched green covers, except there's one volume, and it's the volume from 1936, which is where Turing's paper on the universal machine was published. If you take out that volume, the binding is completely disintegrated. And it's clear that people had read that paper like 500 times. And that, you know, because we didn't have PDFs or scanners or, you know, so people were like going, the engineers were going to the library and looking at that paper. And to me, that's the proof. I mean, obviously those guys at the Institute read that paper. And Bigelow said, maybe several of the engineers told me, yeah, if Second day I was at work, they told me to go read that paper. And I mean, a lot of this stuff is it, is this on computable numbers? Is this yes? It's a paper. I've tried to read that, and I, you know, I couldn't make. It, it clearly was revolutionary, but I, I just couldn't understand it. Yeah, yeah. My dad said he, he read it when it came out because you know he was a, just a pure mathematician at that time, and he said, said I thought I thought it was a brilliant piece of math got math at work but i didn't didn't expect it would ever have any effect on the real world tell us about your dad uh well he was he he sort of dodged that bullet it's interesting I've, i have all his letters now and so he was younger but he was a brilliant math student at cambridge during the war and they actually tried to send him to bletchley he at that time there was there was a guy who also famous now cp snow who was in charge of sort of finding positions for bringing scientists into the war effort. World War I, sort of they, the policy was everybody's equal. You can be a mathematical genius, but we're going to send you to, you know, fire mortars at the front like everybody else. And that was that was very stupid. They realized that they, they lost a whole generation of scientists. So World War II, they tried to put the scientists into positions where they could help. And my father didn't want to go to Bletchley. I think it was a little late. I think if it had been at the beginning, so like for him, it was 1943 before he was old enough. He, he, he gave him 18 months of college and then it was off to the work in the war. And that was all the college he had. But he didn't want to go to Bletchley because he wanted to be more involved. So he went to work for the RAF for the in what we now would call operations research. But I think by then, Bletchley was just too big. It was like 10,000 people and he, he felt he would just be a, a minor part of this machine so this is Fre freeman dyson he, he, he ended up being a, a important uh... yeah he ended up he, he sort of was a you know a physicist who's or a mathematician who at the end of the war decided to to come to america and go into that he could be more useful to physics than he, he tried to solve a deep mathematical problem and failed and sort of it was his test case if i can if i can solve this problem i will be a mathematician if i can't solve it i, I better just go be a physicist 
That's that's your original connection to the institute. Yes. So he so Oppenheimer, who was the director, just by coincidence invited my mother and father at the same time. They they happened to be brought together there in the fall of 1948. So my mother actually had a PhD. Freeman did not, and that's that's where they met. So so thanks to you know directly thanks to Oppenheimer that that, uh, you know, that I ended up there. It's interesting. I know that we're we're running out of time here, but it, it's really interesting to me how much of of the the origins of the computers that we work on today have their roots in military origins. Um, yes, yeah. I, I mean you you just uh, you wouldn't know it looking at at, at the the MacBook Pro that I'm talking to you on, or the or the iPhone in my pocket, or uh, you know even the, the the smart television downstairs. But are, are there some ethical questions kind of bound up in in uh, some of the devices we take for granted today? Uh, yes. I mean, there's deep ethical questions and, and I've always put that, you know, sort of a thought experiment. I mean, that, that, that everyone likes to think that the, or the classic view is that the sort of Los Alamos bomb project was a deal with the devil that, you know, that the scientists got, you know, for, for the scientists, it was absolutely a dream. You could do all the science you want. You can work on whatever you don't have to teach. You don't have to grade papers. You don't have to, we don't care what kind of degree you have you can just do pure science but there's a catch and that's the deal with the devil you got to build this bomb and you know there's so it's always been that the bomb was the work of the devil and that the devil wanted the bomb and i've always said well you know you, you can't be so sure cuz they didn't just build the bomb they they built computers you know the modern computer was as much a product of Los Alamos as, as the bomb was, and that maybe, and, and we haven't had a thermonuclear war, you know, the th- thermonuclear war never happened. Like if the devil had wanted the bomb, wouldn't the devil have used it? But the world has been absolutely taken over by computers. And so you got to be careful that maybe the deal was the devil wanted the computers. And that, that I believe is the job of responsibility of people who work in technology is to keep that in the back of your mind, that this absolutely amazing thing that changed the world and brought us the you know the mac and everything that we love you know can also bring us the work of the devil and just just keep that in mind and watch out for it michael i think that's our next song <laughs> you know you never know uh we we uh write every february especially uh, we we go into our album writing month it, it a lot of a lot of that makes the next album so uh how do you feel Turing's legacy has been, uh, how has it changed in the last 10, 20 years? And do you feel like Turing's cathedral was, was truly realized? Well, yes, in the sense that, that this, you know, digital universe that, that he imagined and the powers of digital computing were, were of course, completely realized, but, but unrealized in the sense that, that we've remained stuck in that one you know, it's like the world is still running on his undergraduate thesis, not, you know, like, when he went, for instance, when he came to Princeton, he came to work on something quite different, sort of non-predictable, non-logical machines. He called them oracle machines, which were actually, you know, he already, I think, was bored with this, like, purely predictable digital. That would never be the way to true intelligence. And so if, you know, if Turing were alive, I think he'd be running around saying, you guys are nuts. I mean, to think that you're going to get real AI out of these defined formal codes, it's, it's going to come from somewhere else. And in that sense, we haven't, we haven't at all got there yet. We're still stuck with the, just being absolutely hypnotized with the power that these one certain species of machines had, but sort of disregarding all the the rest and the way that the that the world of nature works, which is what was of interest to Alan at the end of his life, and it's such a tragedy that he died so young before he had a chance to see any of that start to happen. Did you ever hear about his reaction to the computers that were created during his lifetime? Was he? Oh yeah, he was. I mean, he he was deeply involved too. He worked at you know he ended up at Manchester, which was a very much a center of actually doing things in, in uh, it was sort of the MIT of, you know, of Britain and, and uh, worked on 
some of the early commercial computers, the Ferranti Mark I and stuff, were, were, he was involved in design. So he, he was definitely a very hands-on guy. And it's just a, yeah, a tragedy. I mean, he, he could have lived long enough to, like when Danny Hillis, who started one of the really far-thinking early American ventures in like, let's actually build a, this company was called Thinking Machines. Let's, uh-huh. let's build something different in hardware. One of the first things he did was he hired uh, Richard Feynman, just called up Feynman and said, you know, do you want, will you come work for us? And Feynman said, sure, if you actually give me a job, I'll come work. And, and if Alan Turing could have been remained alive to be hired at a place like that, the world would be very different. Anything else you'd like to talk about before we wrap up? No, thanks. Thanks for having me. And, and I have to thank all the teachers in Princeton who suffered me as I was a very difficult student, very non-appreciative of a lot of the help people tried to give me. And it was a very interesting place to, to grow up. And the, uh, you know, and my hero was Julian Bigelow, who was the guy who were going to his house and he had an airplane engine taken apart in his living room. And, oh, man. And, and there's that other sort of Princeton gets, <laughs> Princeton gets too much credit as this great ivory tower of academic theoretical work and not enough credit for for all the you know hands-on sort of engineers who who make that stuff actually possible boy well next time you're in town i hope you'll stop by the office uh we uh certainly have enough uh people doing some great things today george dyson thank you for for uh helping us uh learn a little bit more about alan turing and johnny von neumann and speaking to us from your home in washington state Thank you. Yeah. yeah been, thank you for having us. Thank it's, you. It's been very illuminating. I appreciate it. Well, that was a lot of fun. I still feel bad about the Spycraft Spygate uh, incident. Well, it'll be, we'll, we'll call it a, uh, a scandal and we'll call it Spygate. That's right. Spike. <laughs> hey, you know, you used to be near that area when you were in school. That's right. I was I was in in Washington D.C. near the Watergate, and uh, oh boy, that, that that goes in a completely different direction. Um, <laughs> this was this this was a a, a, a lovely uh, episode, if yeah. I say so myself. And I I hope you learned a little bit uh, and that dive and delved deeper than the the movie about Alan Turing or anything you may have read. I hope we learned something more because i sure did so uh until then we want to play you the song here's the song you had vision you had smarts but we were careless with your heart You cracked the code, you had the dream The answers lay in your machine The algorithm you'd feed in A device that could do the work of a thousand men Oh, the thanks that you were due But instead, we tried to program you And we made you pay the price For simply living out your life A nation ought to rise and fall together But maybe now I understand The many ways to be a man We're sorry, Alan, you deserved much better Germans sent their messages at sea Scrambled by the Enigma machine They rained their vengeance on the Royal Marines Till you found their boats positioned out at sea With a program you designed You won a world war with your mind Your device decoded every letter You 
were the hero of the day till we found out you were gay. We're sorry, Alan, you deserved much better. you take those pills you took to bed That's where we found that poison apple by your head We made sure that you were held apart But you let us know you'd never change your heart Now as I reach out across time on a computer you design know your contributions we could never measure I can't make it okay all I can do is say your name I'm sorry Alan you deserved much better I'm sorry Alan you deserved much better That's cool. I I, uh, I I hope you had your tissues out because uh, I had mine, and really, just it, it breaks my heart every time we hear the song. It, it doesn't fail to break my heart. Yeah. And and that apology when we sing it in harmony is out of the. It's it's absolutely genuine. So yeah, it's connecting with audiences, and that's uh, that's that's the best thing. So uh, word of wisdom. Word of wisdom. Uh, do you have one? Algorithm. Number. You've been listening to the Nathans and Roncast. Brought to you by Michael Roncat. And Aaron M. Nathans, <laughs> Bachelor of Arts. Oh, that's that's my favorite outro ever. Okay, have a good day, everyone. Peace. <laughs>